0: Welcome again to The Theology Pugcast, it's great to have you with us and uh, we are in Connecticut and we are in each other's physical presence. Uh, There's proximity here, we're not not dealing with virtual reality, we're not trying to pretend that we're in the same room (laughs) in a Zoom format uh, like Brady Bunch or something like that. We're actually here with each other and we're enjoying beer and uh, we've got some friends with us anyway. You're with us, and we're glad for that. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. I pastor a church in Vancouver, Washington. The, uh, Pres- uh, the uh, Presbyterian Church, of or I should say, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Vancouver. And uh, if you find yourself out there, and you're looking for a place to uh, worship, we'd love to have you with us. Anyway, I've written a number of things, and I've spoken in a, in a number of
1: places, and that's enough about me. Tom, how about you? Um, Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach uh, both Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And I just wanted to say we have good friend John and uh, Lynn is with us today.
0: Yep, and Dave.
1: And Dave. Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. So we've got some friends uh, to uh, overhear what we're saying and confirm that we were actually physically here today <laughs> and not actually and not, and not virtually together.
2: But Glenn, Glenn, how about you? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am currently a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. That's great. And by
0: the way, I think that when this show comes out, I will uh, be uh, preparing to be in Norman, Oklahoma. Norman, Oklahoma, where I'm going to be speaking at the Timber Creek Fellowship uh, on a Saturday morning. And and I believe the date, if I uh, remember correctly, is April 17th. I think that's a Saturday. Anyway.
2: When you're there, yeah, if you can get to the university, you really need to check out the architecture on the library. Okay. Is it going to
0: appall me or enchant me? Um
2: I, I prefer the word bemuse. <laughs> um, it, it, now, it's been a long time since I've been there. I mean, actually, right. more decades than I'd like to admit. <laughs> but when I was there, they had this this beautiful American Gothic um, library building, and they decided they needed more room on it, so they attached to the back of it a square brick box <laughs> uh, to to add to the stacks. And it, it's a a truly... <laughs> amazing example of utilitarianism destroying architecture so you have a juxtaposition
0: you've got something that's more classical in nature and then you have this box yep okay i I, i've seen that sort of thing sort of again and again in different parts of the world but anyway i know what you're getting at well (laughs) if i can check it out i will i may not have the time they're actually flying me in on friday afternoon i'm flying back on saturday afternoon so I'm just there to do the event and look out I'll, the window of the airplane. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. So I'll, I'll technically be, you know, there, but uh, and I'll be able to say I was in Oklahoma City and I was in Norman, Oklahoma, but that's about all i have able to say. And of course, I'll be at the church.
1: The only time I've been in Oklahoma is when I was on my way to Austin, Texas, and okay. they had to do a detour. So you were going
0: through I, to get get to Texas, which probably right. is something that. Folks in Oklahoma would be appalled at
1: that. They would, but I did get to see their terrain from a plane view, so <laughs> that's my only experience, sadly. <laughs>
0: well, I'm looking forward to it. I've not been to Oklahoma, and uh, I'm glad to be uh, going there, and I'm, 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 I'm honored to have been asked to, to speak. Anyway, uh, it's my day here on the podcast, and uh, so it's my turn, as we all know, to introduce the subject, and I want to talk about the hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm. The no, why do you
2: want to do that? Because
0: I'm a very suspicious person. What's <laughs> behind all that suspicion? That's right, that's right. Well, you know where I'm going with this. Paul Ricœur, the uh, French philosopher and uh, thinker, uh, uh, is the person who coined the term, the hermeneutic of suspicion. And what, what he was getting at, and he's an interesting fellow. He was born into a Huguenot family. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, went from being kind of a... Uh, a target during the 60, the rebellions and the protests of '68, to kind of a national hero, intellectually in France, uh, when he was older, and and later he died, and was celebrated. Uh, so it ends well for him. But uh, the term Hermannica's suspicion, what what he's getting at, is he says he sa- he said, uh, people to uh, you know, in our time, read. Uh, with with a hermeneutic that uh, is seeking to uncover the true motives uh, of the person who wrote what you're reading uh, because uh, there's always something kind of going on beneath the surface. So you need to be suspicious. The What's stated can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. You've got to look for the true motives beneath the surface. So he identified Three figures as uh, responsible for the hermeneutic of suspicion, or uh, maybe another way of putting it is, uh, you know, uh, embodiments of the hermeneutic sus- of suspicion. Mm. One is Freud. Yeah. You know, another is Marx, and the third is Nietzsche. Yeah. So they're all 19th century, you know, transitional, trans- transitioning into the 20th century. They're figures that I think that many people, when they think about, I don't know, when they think about you know when would be a good time to be you know to be alive uh when would be a good time to sort of you know live uh you know in the past uh you know wouldn't the victorian era be be that time that you'd want to live in i mean you got dickens you got you know the industrial revolution you've got you still have a very strong sort of cultural uh sort of ethos that's informed by christianity so you've got all these things you know
2: Anybody who has read Dickens would not want to go back and live in that period.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And maybe we see...
1: Bleak house.
0: (laughs) But I do think that there are a lot of people who uh, have a very romantic uh, connection to that time. You know, uh, the literature is attractive. Uh, And then there there are personages, uh, you know, literary persona who we think about, like Sherlock Holmes. You know, so anyway... But it's during that period of time that we have these major figures who are champions of suspicion. Now, when we think about Freud, well, Freud uh, is the one who championed the idea of the unconscious, right? So the conscious, the consciousness, uh, is this sort of layer uh, that is, uh, you know, that you're aware of, but it's it, it's covering this sort of deep uh, and and kind of uh, powerful and seething mm-hmm. kind of uh, sort of uh, layer beneath the surface that you know is bubbling with the id,
1: Yeah. And could, sexual and
0: desire yeah, and you
1: could you could almost I mean if you think about it sort of the you know the things we've talked about on the show is it's this kind of irrational level of desire. Right, right. It's, you know, it's voluntarism down in, in the subconscious.
0: Yeah, so you've got, you know, the, the, the sex drive, but you also have the death drive. Uh, both of these things are present. You've heard the term Freudian slip. Freudian slip is basically a slip that uh, brings to the surface some, you know, the, these drives or these, these things that are beneath the surface. Now the superego is that part of your, your personality or your you know sort of mental life that is uh, there to represent social standards and suppress uh, these uh, drives, right? Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, sort of redirecting them in positive ways. You know, an example of 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 what Freud would be getting at when, with this regard to this is sports. You know, so it's sports, competitive sport, like rugby or whatever, is the death drive, uh, sublimated and redirected in ways that are socially uh, useful and salutary. Hmm. But what that means is that when we think about sport, think about rugby or football or even baseball or golf, there's something uh, ugly, there, that's underneath the surface, and that's the, the desire to dominate and to kill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like you see in the animal kingdom, yeah. right? You yeah. know, so so that is what Freud yeah. contributes to the way we think, and why we ought to, and, and that's his suggestion, or actually his teaching on why we ought to be suspicious.
1: And so, yeah, what otherwise would look like claimed, you know, virtuous acts are really under the surface, very disgusting kind of that's thing. That's right, that's right. Just, yeah, they're just tempered, they're directed or limited.
0: Yeah, Schopenhauer is another interesting figure in this whole discussion yeah. because Schopenhauer talks about will. Yeah. Not will to power, but just will, will yeah. raw will. And, um, you know, uh, I remember reading some, something that Schopenhauer said, and it was, uh, it was this, Why do we have the urge to grin when we hear that someone has died? That's a fascinating observation, but that's what he's getting at. There's some kind of primal, unconscious, subconscious, pre-conscious, <laughs> irrational urge that he calls will. That's at work. And, we, and, we, and we're ashamed of that, and we suppress it. But it has a way of working itself out and bubbling up in all sorts of places. You remember the film Forbidden Planet? That's a I don't fa- think I remember it. Either. Yeah. Yeah. Forbidden Planet was uh, Le- uh, Leslie Nielsen was in oh. Forbidden Planet before he did the airplane franchise. <laughs> he played a serious role in in Forbidden Planet, and in Forbidden Planet, there's this monster who keeps <laughs> keeps a, 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 a assaulting uh, this spacecraft from Earth that's that's landed to do some. I don't know exactly what they're there for, but Leslie Nielsen is the commander of the ship. But there is this sort of mad scientist who's there <laughs> who's found this alien technology. And uh, he's got a beautiful daughter, of course. And uh, what happens is in the, in the uh, course of the film, there's this monster that keeps attacking the ship, this invisible monster, this, this energy force. Well, over the course of the film, it's revealed that it's actually the id, of the professor, the father of the beautiful daughter, whose uh, id or sort of irrational, monstrous, sort of subconscious self is being energized and instantiated in this (laughs) energy being that's attacking the ship. Why? Because he wants to protect his daughter Jealously possess his daughter <laughs> and keep his daughter from all those good looking guys on the spaceship <laughs> so anyway so that that was uh, the, it was they, they referred to it as the monsters from the id the monsters <laughs> from the id so that 's one of the uh, you know uh, proponents of the hermetic of suspicion so Freud would say you don 't trust what people say you don 't trust reason what you do is you use reason to uncover these irrational forces that are working uh, in, you know, a person's life. So that's, that's the first. Now, the second uh, is uh, Marx. So Marx maintained that uh, a society, uh, its culture, its uh, institutions that operate on the surface actually are supported by the means of production. The sort of the power, uh, sort of arrangements within a society that, uh, you know, we see in the means of production with regard to capitalism, for example. So you've got these people who are self-interested. They're, they're people who are pursuing their economic you know, interests, and they're using other people to do that. Uh, but there are a series of institutions in place to kind of keep people uh, sort of uh, numb, uh, drugged, uh, in an opiate state, keeps them keeps them unaware of, of this exploitation that's going on.
1: Yeah, that, and that's interesting because yeah, I mean here you go again. It's it, it's it's irrational forces, right? They're not governed by intelligibility. They're material. They're economic, largely in power. Right. And then you you then but you also have a strange kind of attempt at a realism in the sense that the human being that is in a particular state. Of every human state of consciousness and its understanding of the world is determined by... It's almost a mirror reflection of its place within that set of determining forces.
0: Yeah, so for some strange reason a person is able to uncover what is really going on. Only
1: Marx. You see, that's real freedom. There's your prophet, right? The prophet of freedom, Karl Marx.
0: So, (laughs) a very nasty person who was very... uh, I think, uh, unsavory. And Mainly meaner. because of its economic <laughs> 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 But, uh, so, you can't really take anything at face value. For example, religion. So, the religion in question here is Christianity. Yeah. So, the idea being uh, that, well, Christianity, uh, according to Marx, is, intent, is is sort of working to take your mind off of this, these material... Concerns and redirect your attention toward pie in the sky by and by.
1: Well, interestingly, you get a here's a therapeutic understanding of Christianity, right? It is a certain kind of therapy that allows you to cope with right your your ex- exploitation and your lot in life. It's kind of like alcohol, you know? right? Well, that but that's his point. It's an
0: opiate. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a kind of drug. That doesn't actually deal with the real problem. What you ought, what you ought to do is, instead of re- taking recourse to religion, uh, you ought to deal directly yeah. with the problem.
1: And, and religion has a, st- in his view, has a very static, and um, it, it defends created order. Sometimes, in his view, in such a way that it doesn't transform it. Right. So it just the status quo. Yeah. It keeps its lot.
0: Right. Right. And that's because. In this in this view culture and ideas are kind of ephemeral they sort of like are a mist that emerges from the ground of reality and reality is exclusively material
1: yeah
0: uh, and it's it's power and matter that matter yeah. you know and if we can rearrange power structures that will necessarily result in a kind of Transformation of consciousness, yeah. our way of thinking, and our way and and the the arts and the the other th- sort of products. At least as Marx puts it, uh, all the products of the power arrangements will be altered, and something out something m- better will be the result. Yeah, no. by reach
2: no. sh- Oh, go ahead. If it, to apply Freud to Marx for a moment, <laughs> um, Marx is father moved the family to another city. They were Jewish. Right. And he converted to Lutheranism because it would be good for business. Yeah. 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 And that may help explain some of Marx's feelings about religion. Yeah. Along with that, he was a member originally of a group known as the Young Hegelians. Yes. This was a group of people who were followers of Hegel but rejected in particular his idea that Prussia at the time was the perfect example of of freedom (laughs) and um, they decided that to undermine Prussia the way you would do it was go after religion okay because Lutheranism was so embedded in Prussian national identity and ideology that you can undermine if you can undermine that, you can undermine Prussia. Yeah. So Marx is coming out of both of these backgrounds yeah, as the, he's as he's approaching but, religion. Yeah, but, but it
1: is interesting what you just say because this may be their positive contribution: is that we do oftentimes do, we, we oftentimes won't address always head on their claims because we understand the conditioning of their you know the genetic fallacy if you will their ideas are reducible to their set of psychological informative traditions there is a genuine place for that i think there there is i mean we and they i think unmasked it but i do think sometimes we we leave it there all of us and i think i think classic christianity wouldn't but we i think we're going there so i'm not going to say more yeah well yeah, yeah 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 i think we are going there um the third uh,
0: master of suspicion, or uh, proponent of the hermeneutic of suspicion, is Nietzsche. <laughs> so Nietzsche uh, essentially is uh, concerned again with power, right? Um, and it's the will to power that is the real force underlying things. And there's a, I think, a parallel here or a common uh, sort of structure in terms of the way of looking at things that we see with with Freud and with Marx, what you have on the surface is not the story. You need to kind of dig beneath the surface and unearth what's really motivating people to do what they're doing. And people are seeking power, and power uh, is something that you seek for its own sake. It's not something that you seek for some higher good. It's something that is really the sum of bonum, and it's all there is. And so it's a, there's a kind of a... I guess, uh, satisfaction and pleasure that one uh, enjoys when
1: one has power. Right. And and this, I mean, you know, uh, Michael Gillespie has told this story a lot. I've, I've quoted him a lot, but this is really the way in which when there's a move it away from classic Christian view of God to God as sheer power. Humans made in the image of God as sheer power. This is really one of the, the varieties of that expression. Yeah, I think um, that's right. And this, is, this may be a theological reduction, but I do think that's what's driving this. Why else would he be attracted to that as what it means to fundamentally be right. human or, or creaturely? Because power somehow has taken on this ability... Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's self-realization or, or agency or whatever it is, and it seems to be over and over again um, the attraction, especially in the West, to what is ultimate is this right. power.: yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. and of course, in the case of Nietzsche, as we see with Marx and Freud, you have to unmask you know things. you have to, sus- you have to sort of look beneath the surface, you have to be suspicious. Yeah. See what's really going on.
1: So truth is nothing more than a, a kind of an army of metaphors right, to, to, to cloak your, your power and your privileges. That's, a, that's it, the way Mark, yeah, right, I mean, uh, Nietzsche put, put it. it yeah. Yeah.
2: At the risk of landing back in the genetic fallacy. <laughs> what we're looking at with all of these guys, as well as with a whole host of others, um, yeah. <clears throat> You know, you can look at Kierkegaard, you can look at Bergson, you can look at Dostoevsky. All of these guys are reacting against post-enlightenment rationalism yeah, and yeah. are rediscovering yeah. something that Christians have known for a long yeah. time, yeah. that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can understand it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah the thing that got me
0: thinking along these lines is I just finished reading an, a treatment of Foucault in First Things, mm-hmm. there's a, a, a female uh, scholar philosopher, I think. I, I don't have it handy, but she did a really nice job of uh, handling Foucault and sort of his outlook. But that's what Foucault was up to as well. I mean, he's a, he's a Marxist. and uh, So, um, but what you have, I think, in each of these uh, examples is something I think is puzzling. The illusion is more attractive than the reality. Wouldn't you agree? I mean when the when everything is revealed to be nothing more than yeah. the death drive or the sex drive or the will to power or the power structures of of, of the economy you kind of is that really it yeah. that is that all there is to it yeah. i mean are we that base are we that bad i mean is it yeah. uh, is there nothing beautiful is there nothing good is there yeah. nothing true is there nothing worth living for
1: yeah it's just all the epiphenomena of once yeah. being conditioned. And this is what yeah. C.S. Lewis
0: marvelously critiqued in The Silver Chair in The Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you recall. There they are with, I think it's the Green Witch. They're underneath the surface of, of Narnia, and she's describing, or she's, she's dismissing, I should say, the, the, the memory of the sun. Do you recall? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what she says, is, oh, what you're talking about is merely a light, This is a very Freudian approach. You're just describing a light and you're sort of projecting it into the sky with uh, this idea that this would be a comforting, (laughs) and this would be a comfort to to think that there is actually this luminous body in the heavens. (laughs) All it really is is just something in your head. And then, is it Puddle Glum? Is it Puddle Gum or Puddle... Puddle Glum. Puddle Glum. glum. People
2: used to say that he was my role model. (laughs) Kind of like Eeyore?
0: (laughs) So anyway, So Puddle Glum says, well, I can say this. Our dream is better than your reality and I'll take my dream. But I think what Puddle Glum is really saying is that it wouldn't be as attractive as it is, this dream, if there wasn't something to it. Hmm. You know, there really is more. You know, another, another time that C.S. Lewis does does something similar similar to this is in The Pilgrim's Regress. So in The Pilgrim's Regress, you have Pilgrim and he's traveling down this road and you veer to the north and you end up in these harsh, sort of rationally sort of structured, you know, wastelands (laughs) and that's where Nazis and communists live. (laughs) It's in those places. But there's there's this scene where there's this giant and if i recall correctly there is a there's a kind of a x-ray effect that reason is able to produce to show the inner workings of the body of the giant and the the point that i think lewis is making if i'm remembering the scene correctly is that just because you know the sort of inner workings of a thing doesn't really mean you understand the thing the point of the thing and, and I think Tolkien is addressing the same thing when he's, you know, working with the character of Saruman. And Saruman's talking about, you know, breaking, you know, light in order to demonstrate the spectrum. And, and then uh, Gandalf says, well, then it's not white any longer. In other words, white in this, this, this uh, illustration is a thing that's worth enjoying and recognizing for its own sake. Just because you break it apart doesn't mean you genuinely understand it.
2: Whoever breaks a thing in order to understand it has left the path of wisdom.
0: Yeah, that's a a great line. And and in that line, Tolkien is I think critiquing the Cartesian approach. Uh, And much of the Modern approach to knowledge is in terms of reduction. Well,
1: that's interesting because I mean, one of the the classic way of doing this is uh, is is the first principles. I mean, Lewis is in the tradition of first principles. The modern world is breaking it down into its its um, quantifiable.
0: Yes, quantifiable um, versus
1: quantitative. Quali- yeah, that's right. And qualitative. That's right. And so the qualitative, like for classically in Christianity, for example. Um, you, you want the ultimate reality to be the light that shines on all the particulars. It doesn't mean the particulars are reducible to the ultimate, because it's Christianity, especially not. but you return the first principle because they're, they're the irreducible something from which, to which and through which all things or to which all things are. Um, and so, for example, Today we would look at a a text and then we would look at it, we try to break it down into something, this, you know, contingent, its historical particulars. But scriptures, when it talks about these things, tells you that's one layer of the picture and it's an important layer. But that layer is not the principle from which you understand the full meaning because it itself is dependent and creaturely. So that all the particulars of history, even together, do not create the source from which, the, the being source and therefore the meaning source from which all of the particulars are, are read. So the, when you go back to first principles, you're going to the ultimate reality that determines, defines, and orders everything. So to understand what something is, that is creaturely, you have to understand upon which it depends, what defines and determines it, what form it has and to what end it has. But this is very different. This is merely reducing it to its barest components and then leaving it there. There's no form, there's no finality, there's no from which, to which, uh, through which and to which anything is.
0: And I think that's one of the reasons why these ways of thinking about things have proven to be so popular in our time because um, it's foregone conclusion for many people there are no formal or final causes. That's they right. don't. They just don't even think in those terms. Um, but I think there is a way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't uh, mean to imply that this is the only way back. But I. I would. I would like to. i I'm, I'm suggesting that it is one of the ways back, and it's a different hermeneutic. So, you have a hermeneutic of suspicion. Which doesn't take anything at face value and looks for sort of underlying motives. But what that does, I think, is it dehumanizes the person who's writing. The, 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 whatever you're reading, you, you're no longer reading something written by a person. You're looking, you're looking for some mal-
1: malintent or some deceptive practice. Or uh, and the interesting thing is, it's always read mal or deceptive. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? What if, they, what if those, you know, I'm just for the sake of argument, not to be skeptical here, but, but just, you know, for the sake of argument, what if those forces actually aren't as sinister as they think? Yeah, yeah. What if they actually, towards like Darwin said, towards life and su- um, um, survival?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, why is that
1: negative? I'm just, yeah. I, I'm just, I mean, I don't agree with that, but I'm just saying they always read it as if it's some... some you know, like with well, Descartes, something that needs to be managed and controlled. Well, I think it goes back to the garden. Yeah. I yeah. think
0: that, you know, we have in Scripture the very first yeah. uh, example of the hermeneutic of suspicion. Yeah, yeah. Does, you know, that, did God <laughs> really say, yeah. or, you know, why, you know, the the reason why he, <laughs> he wants you to... You know, stay away from this tree and not eat this fruit is because he doesn't want you to be like him. <laughs> you know, so the hermeneutic of suspicion is not something invented in the nineteenth century. It's That's been with true. us for a long, long time. Yeah. But it's, it's very just,
1: primitive. If you want to be reductionistic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but,
0: but let me uh, let me uh, move with move on with, to the thing I'm suggesting here. So I suggest uh, a hermeneutic of sympathy. Let's uh, begin with the with the assumption, I think it, no, 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 this is, it's more than an assumption. Let's begin with the, with the truth that we're reading something written by a human being. Which profound already, thought. Yeah, well,
1: it is, but it already, it, it creates a fuller picture here. Because when that is the case, and see, this is, this is sometimes, I mean, look, I, I understand John Calvin has a, something that can be as, um, and and St. Augustine can be as suspicious as anything else. Like right? the, the, you know, the heart sure. is an idol maker, and it is. Sure, sure. This is very true. But none of, neither Augustine nor Calvin meant by that that there was nothing about the human being, in the common grace of God, that also could know some truths, confess some realities, and have certain kinds of human genuineness well and, and, and,
0: and that's right but, but they also uh, believe that they were human beings that's
1: right tinctured
0: with sin t- uh, touched by, by that's, sin that's right and that's one of the things that you don't see with Freud or Marx yeah. or Nietzsche yeah. they nothing that they write is confessional yeah nothing that they write says you know what I struggle with all this stuff too and I'm trying yeah. to get over it no what they yeah. what they assume is a kind of purity of intent yeah. on yeah. their own part. So they are judging the rest of humanity. Yeah, the self-righteousness and, yeah, 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 yeah. But but let, let me step back to my hermeneutic of sympathy. So if I if, if I recognize that I'm, re- I'm reading something written by a human being who's as mixed a bag as I am, <laughs> I have my good days. I have my bad days. I have good motives. I have bad motives. Okay. <laughs> now. Because I have bad motives, I can be suspicious of the motives of other people, but that does not exonerate me. It just brings to the surface the fact that human beings are fallen and we have to be aware that we fall short of our highest ideals. But we still have ideals. We still long for things that are true and good and beautiful now, if I'm reading someone whose work has actually survived mm. down the centuries or through the centuries and has actually arrived at my desk, that's in, in some sense an endorsement by many people. Uh, and that endorsement is, you know, there's something worthwhile for you to know that this person said or wrote and uh, you ought to read it. So, I've got two reasons to be sympathetic. One is that I'm reading something written by a human being. The second is that other human beings have taken the trouble to preserve what this person has read or written and passed it, pass it down to me. Now, we all know there are tons and, tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of things that we write that will never make it past tomorrow. Yeah. They're just not that great. They're not, that, yeah. they're not worthwhile. Yeah. But, if something has endured, That's something to consider when we read. So those two things in my mind uh, help me
2: read sympathetically. I I would add a third. Okay. The golden rule. Yeah, yeah. You know, if if you follow what Jesus is saying there, you should not assume bad motives or hidden agendas or things like that from other people if you don't want them to assume those things about you. That's right. Mm Great. And I'm going to add
1: another. Coming from Karl Barth, of all people, he was talking in particular about church fathers, but this could be applied to anyone in particular, is honor your father and mother. Yes. Because it doesn't matter who your immediate parents are, you, your father and mother go all the way back. Yes. And so there is something in their works, every single one of them, that has a claim on you just because they were you 're the byproduct now of everything that went before you, and I think that actually kind of gets to the
0: to what I think is the the malintent of the hermeneutic suspicion yeah. it 's an attempt to throw off the claims and the sort of the, uh, the constraints uh, that uh, we feel when we recognize our debts, yeah you know we say well I mean if this person uh, has contributed to my welfare, I really owe them some kind of uh, acknowledgement and some gratitude.
1: Right? Yeah. right? Well, that's it. This, in, in any kind of um, way in which those claims could have something that determines me in any way that's inconsistent with the way I want to define myself. And see, that's one of the gifts, I think, of of ancient writers and and the like, is that they bring into me a set of claims that, yes, I don't always, I mean, you have to weigh them up against the final truth scripture and your participation in the community of faith and all of that. But what you're not doing is ignoring them or just saying, oh, that they're irrelevant or they have nothing to say. Um, it's the exact opposite. They have something to say because of who they are and, and, and what claim they do have. I mean, and there is this resistance to anything that is gonna form me. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and what prompted my thinking along these lines is I, I conducted um, a seminar on uh, Xenophon's Hoikonomikas, uh, hmm. which is you know, uh, a great work from antiquity written in the fourth century, most scholars believe. Uh, Socratic Dialogue in which uh, Socrates uh, has two interlocutors, one of whom is a failed or failing uh, you know, head of house and another who's a successful head of house. Now both of these are, are men and uh, uh, and in the course of the dialogue Socrates is trying to understand you know, what is it about the guy who's succeeding that contributes to his, his success. Now, Foucault actually wrote a commentary on Economicas. Now what do you think Foucault was obsessed with? Power relations, biopolitics, all yeah. that kind of stuff. He was not at all interested in what makes a household function. <laughs> that yeah. was not why he was reading the book or reading the dialogue. He was reading the dialogue with an agenda and the agenda was to uncover the sinister sort of agenda you know, that ancient uh, men in Athens, uh, you know, were sort of pursuing at the expense
1: of other people. To his credit, he did at least try to read it.
0: <laughs> well, that's right. He but actually... It's
1: just not, that's not sympathetic. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't read it sympathetic. <laughs> and I, read,
0: I think the reason why Foucault didn't read it sympathetic,
1: well, well a couple of things. Well, he's a homosexual. Yeah, you know, he's and, not, and from what I'm reading in more recent literature, he was also predatory towards minors.
0: Wow, wow. Yeah,
1: that's there's a lot of yeah. recent work co- came out on that.
0: Okay, well, a- I'm not and, I'm not
1: surprised. And though to his credit, besides all that distorting vision, um, he actually was obsessed with reading the church fathers. Well, yeah, yeah, he actually
0: had some positive things to say about the fathers. Yeah. But anyway, but but. He, you know, as I've said before, I think in our last show, in fact, when you're riding, you know, across America in a in a rider, you know, moving van, all you can see are other rider moving vans because you're so aware of the fact that you're driving a rider moving van. So you, you miss a lot of things that uh, are going on, but you're focused on one thing. So he's focused on one thing. He's focused on the biopolitics, you know, sort of the... Politi- you know, the, the personal is political. The household and as, as yeah. a polity, he's he's completely wrapped up in that, and he's missing just some very basic, uh, I think, uh, things like survival and, uh, you know, actually being able to get things done and
1: Yeah, flourishing uh, and yeah, that's right. Just and, the, and, and the unfolding of true true natures and kinds and ends. I mean, right. that's what he. That's it. he it, it, to you know, disturbing human being, but to his credit, he. He worried about those things. Yeah. He, he obsessed about those things, and I think he he was trying... You talk about a seared content. He was trying to rid himself of those things, but he, he was unable. He kept returning to... Well, I yeah. think that his approach blinded him to some things yeah. that are
0: actually, I think, very marvelous about Xenophon's dialogue. Yeah. Uh, if you actually read it, uh, you can't come away w- from uh, you know reading the dialogue with the, with the... With some of the prejudices that we that we possess, uh, with regard to the you know, sort of the sort of the practice of patriarchy in the past, so in the dialogue, um, the wife of the, of uh, I think is his name, Isomachus is the is the uh, head of house whose household is successful, and uh, what he tells. Socrates in the course of the dialogue is these are the things that I've done and I continue to do to make my house my household successful and what you learn is that he treats his wife very humanely he trusts her with a great deal of power in the household uh, he relies upon her wisdom uh, he, he he informs her that there, there may come a day when she is held in higher regard than he is because of the way in which she has helped the household prosper. Uh, he describes uh, his practice of sharing the profits with his servants, with his slaves, hmm. uh, in order to help them have a sense of shared ownership in the property. In other words, there are things throughout yeah. the course of the dialogue that people
1: like Foucault uh, are not looking for. Well, that's Ellis's point with literature. They, there's a whole tradition here of literature and ideas and writings that are doing this stuff that are completely being ignored but that 's my point, and yeah. the reason
0: it 's being ignored is we don 't sympathize yeah. we, we don 't we
1: we straw men to affirm ourselves rather than be challenged and, and confront reality yeah if we, if we read uh, Xenophon sympathetically,
0: if we read Aristotle sympathetically, mm-hmm. we would see things for example, now famously, you know Aristotle talks about. Uh, people who are s- uh, natural slaves. Now, what he's saying is not what modern people think he's saying when they hear the word natural, because when we think of the word natural, we think of genetics, yeah. right? We think about uh, you know, sort of uh, laws of nature that are, that are uh, you know, irrefutable and can't be changed. That's not the way Aristotle thought. Aristotle was essentially addressing a, a, the, sort of the reality on the ground. There are some people who simply don't know what to do, hmm. and they need to be told.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that nat- that's natural. In other words, kind of the reality on the ground. But also, if you read Aristotle's treatment of slavery sympathetically, you can see he was uncomfortable with slavery. And one of the reasons why we know he was uncomfortable with slavery is because he proposes a solution to slavery that is missed by many readers, except for Thomas Aquinas,
1: I might say, <laughs> who was opposed to it. Anyway, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I, one of the things that he, that, that uh, Aristotle said is if we could create automata, in other words, robots or machines, to do certain things, we wouldn't need slaves. Hmm. And he actually uses. Uh, Hephaestus and Icarus so the tripods of, of Icarus hmm. he says if we could ever come up with something that was actually that actually worked like the tripods I think it's a I think it's a maybe it's a he actually notes both I think there are two different examples from from lo- the lore or mythology that Aristotle was acquainted with that he uses to demonstrate why slavery is not necessary if hmm. certain conditions were different so he's entertaining even then. And he, he raises the question, is slavery something? In other words, it's a, it, was a, it was a subject of conversation. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have raised the question, is slavery necessary or natural, uh, if there was no discomfort, if you get my point. Yeah, yeah. But you won't pick that up. You won't note that if you read... Uh, Aristotle, with a, with a with sort of a
1: hostile frame of mind, looking for hidden agenda. Yeah, yeah the anachronism, you know, I, I think that's the other thing, is Hermeneus' suspicion is just sheer anachronism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just reading what, what you consider to be suspicious on the whole past. I mean, you wouldn't have even arisen to the place you are if it wasn't for the past that gave rise to you. That's right. that's right. If we want to play that game, if we want to play that game,
0: that's right. thank suspicious. you. want to be suspicious. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, let's yeah. be suspicious of, yeah. the, of the hermeneutic of suspicion well, and all those David, clowns.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the used to say that. <laughs> Once you turn it around, it becomes, yeah, it yeah. becomes, it mm-hmm. uh, becomes pretty evident. Evident. Yeah, and that's, yeah. you know, and I think that's what even what Glenn was doing, you know, in mentioning the history. When you start to turn it around, if you're going to play the game, you can unpack a lot of things there. Um, and but that that does, you know, raise another question: is is you know, the, this is one of the things I think, especially in the climate we are now, is this this thinness of reality's complexity. Because there is, and this is what all the critical theorists and everyone else, there are places at which. Human beings, structures, everything else, have sin ingredients and they get advantages of. On. on the other hand, if we say everything is that, we end up with the problem we have now, which is any suggestion otherwise is automatically sus- considered suspect, and therefore no actual ability to bring out the complexity which is necessary for any genuine engagement with the reality. Or even to just move ahead. Yeah, well, that's it. And to actually commune with people. Yeah. What, what, what these people
0: have, have given us is a world of uh, isolated uh, monads. I mean, yeah. well, there is no genuine communion.
2: Yeah. Well, and, and this also, I think, feeds into the entire idea of microaggressions yep. um, and all of the things related to it. Because the assumption is that somewhere behind what you're saying or doing... There's uh, racial animus in, in right, place, and right. even if you're not aware of it, even if you're not conscious of it, it's coming out in what you're saying, and I can recognize it even if you can't. And,
1: right, and right. there is this kind of, the ones making the claim are self-righteous and not guilty of it. Everyone else is absolutely depraved. So you have this kind of Gnostic, yep. elect, yep. non-elect, woke, unwoke. Right worse than augustine when you're talking about oh, elect yeah. and reprobate yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Balkum actually calls it ethnic gnosticism interesting yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. well give him credit yeah Vodi's yeah. good yeah Vodi's really good yeah yeah but i mean that's it's it's exactly what you get and yet you you, you know contra augustine <laughs> um you have you have nothing justifying it other than just uh curious whims i mean they, you know yeah I mean or and and there's really no way out. you know, if
0: we take critical theory and apply it uh sort of evenly, uh, what we come away with is everybody's out to get me, and nothing can be trusted. Yeah. nothing that anyone says can be trusted. I have to be not only am I like Eve doubting god i'm doubting everyone, everyone. i'm doubting glenn
1: i'm yeah. doubting lynn i'm yeah. doubting tom i'm doubting yeah. why should i even trust myself yeah and the only people yeah that are trusted are supposedly within one's you know group. kind of group yep. but even there you start to see is this uh, theories empire talks about, the kind of when you look at the departments that uh, oh they're, that, petty. they're yeah, petty they're petty and they're the wars that go on for funding. So, the, it's, uh, <laughs> so it's it,
0: amazing that anything gets done in this
1: country. It is. When I, I have, I have
0: uh, people I've known that have worked for NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the stuff they've told me about sabotage yeah. between uh, you know respected you know, health authorities just undermining each other's work yeah. so that they could get more money for their own programs. And
1: spread it out to the identities, and that's when you, you yeah. get identity, the competition. So you don't get the unity. No. I mean, this is one of the other things about a, a hermeneutic of suspicion, or uh, I mean, of, of sympathy, or uh, I had a professor, Nicholas Lash used to call it a hermeneutic uh, of charity, right. in which you, you generously recognize the imago Dei, even in its brokenness, but also in its dignity in, in everyone, everything. So that you're, yeah, you're not naive, but on the other hand, you don't receive the genuine uh, gift character. I mean, God doesn't destroy everyone after Adam and Eve. Right. They, they, you know, otherwise, yeah, if, you're if saying, Freud was uh, right, if all those other guys were right, then God would have. That's right, would have. There is nothing there. So, so nothing at all right. is of anything. And, you know, I, I think you could know, find some. some uh, Hyper reform folk in that category. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I've run across
0: those folks. Run, you know, rush
1: Dooney, sorry.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> what, what, one of the things to, to remember is that, with only a few exceptions, revolutions tend to eat their young. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Actually, the t- revolutionaries tend to eat each other.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah.
2: That, that's what you're seeing here with all this.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Cuomo. So they're not. They're not suspicious when it comes down to devouring you know just
2: (laughs) well you know (laughs) and and this is something (laughs) but but, no actually actually, even within among the revolutionaries the hermeneutics of suspicion is applied to each other and that's where you get this tendency for revolutions to, to well revolutionaries to kill each other Well, and if power is the sumum bonum
1: then doesn't it make sense I mean you're almost under Damocles' sword if you have power and you're after it, Yeah, it's no way It's
0: a no-win situation, I mean, uh, it's just a matter of time before you're gonna be done in by somebody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, it's, a, it's really a thin gruel that we're given to eat. Yeah. And again, getting back to just practical sort of considerations, I, I think one of the reasons why this stuff is capable or able to capture uh, you know, sort of attention and the imagination is it 's just because we have so much uh comfort and we have such uh, a large amount of social capital hmm. to kind of live off of yeah. um, we uh, well you know you know I was thinking about this the other day thinking about Carl Sagan, you know the, yeah. the uh, pop scientist atheist dude who is well known for his series Cosmos back in the 80s, um, you know, Sagan was famous for, for uh, saying to his listeners, you are stardust, <laughs> with this sort of, you know, uh, this sort of tone that this is, this is something that should make you think very highly of yourself.
2: Well, you know, so are frogs and and rocks. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That that that's the thing that always got me about uh, uh, the sort of pantheism of the new age movement. You know, people, uh, you got. uh, Shirley MacLaine running down the beach yelling, I am God. Uh, but then again, so is Pomp Scum.
1: Well,
2: that's, that's it. Yeah. You've got to have some sense of hierarchy
0: yeah. and some sense of layering for it there to be a sense of yeah. self-worth in saying something like that about yourself. Yeah. But I think the thing that I'm getting at here is that these people have to cheat. Mm-hmm. So, Sagan is cheating at that moment when he's essentially sort of siphoning off from the uh, riches of the Christian
1: faith—the
0: uh, the notion that being a, a heavenly being is mm-hmm. something important and beautiful and significant—and
1: that our end is uh, in the West glorification, in the East deification. This right. notion of of being, being um, in union with God and in the image of Christ. And I, and I guess this
0: gets back to what you were saying about being suspicious of the suspicious, <laughs> yeah. in the sense that yeah. they're, they're up to things, uh, and the reason why their rhetoric has power is because they're lying. They're, yeah. they're, they're using the resources of our tradition against itself, mm-hmm. yeah. and we ought to call them out on that. Yeah. And we ought to not just do that, we, and this is where it's tricky this is where it's very tricky we ought to even read those guys sympathetically
1: yeah I, I, I think you're right I mean this is uh, this is something yeah this is where you know this is where kind of some of our audience may you know shut the <laughs> Shut their pot off. I don't even know what they're listening on. Well, but,
2: you, you should actually listen to us sympathetically, too..: Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least it's, yeah
1: I mean, it's, I mean you, we should Well I mean, they look, should, we should listen to Glenn sympathetically, look, but just as <laughs> Michelle Foucault, who I, I detest morally, right, right. But as someone who's contributed to the current situation more than, um, you know, at this point. Uh, most people our audience is listening to we need to understand it but we need to understand it in a way and I think it's something Glenn was saying a while back that I think needs to be tied to it the best way to engage all of this stuff because again it's, it's largely on the level of rhetoric and it's largely uh, on, the, on the level of, of power and psychology but it's to shut out you know or use old language out narrate them Christianity has the riches that address every single one of the issues that even Foucault was up to. He was up to some kind of way of fulfillment and, 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 and happiness. He was looking in the wrong place. Yeah. But he still had this fascination with Christianity itself where he read it, he didn't read it sympathetically although sometimes i think he 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 was jealous of it like nietzsche was of christianity right. and he couldn't shake it i mean in one article i just read on foucault said he he could never shake the christian vision yeah, and yeah. he th- he thought the whole west was basically augustinian so that's that's more credit to, to to western theology than most most would give um and you know i don't think he meant that as a good thing it doesn't matter i think he 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 read something in a way that he got something that I think most people today wouldn't have looked at and taken seriously. Even Christians in seminary, how many people are actually reading the church fathers and reading them even in such a way to show that they have impacted the West? None. Yeah, well, that's (laughs) right. Of course,
0: that's what, you
1: know, uh, a number
0: of people in, in, you know, more recent times have been you know, sort of telling us we need to, to, to do more. Read uh, our roots. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, that's right. Anyway, we should probably wrap this up um, for different reasons. Um, None of which you need to be suspicious of. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. It's just I, I kind of need to get home. Is <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that practical? Yeah. <laughs> and we are getting close to the time. Uh, anything you guys want to say as we, as, as we wrap up?
2: No, I just want to repeat my golden rule comment because yeah. that's something that we regularly overlook. We tend to expect the worst motives for the people who oppose us yeah. and assume the best motives for ourselves and people on our side. And that is simply, well, not biblical ethics.
1: Right. right. So, my, so my message to the left from that is don't trust your allies. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're yeah, actually right. I mean, if you're going to consistently <laughs> apply your, your
0: principles there. Right. That's right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, you know, we really do appreciate uh, our listeners. Uh, I've said this uh, a few times recently. Uh, One of the things that people do that really does help us is give us a good rating on the platform that they listen to us on. I think we're up to almost 160 uh, reviews on uh, on iTunes. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. It'd be great to get that up to 200-ish. So if you like us go ahead and rate us if you don't why did you listen this long yes <laughs> you can write that if you want <laughs> well there have been a few people yeah, who have done, yeah. done that although we do have a five-star rating <laughs> uh but there are you know a, a very few very bitter people who yeah. don't like us
2: well just remember if anybody agrees with you on everything right. one of you is unnecessary <laughs>
0: that's, right. that's right that's right well uh Anyway, so we're, we're, we're glad for that. We're, we're also glad for people who, who send us money. Yeah. We, don't, we don't ask for it uh, very often, and uh, people spontaneously do it. And uh, we get these gifts, and we're very grateful. Sometimes people give it to us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Sometimes they give it to us through uh, the platform that, 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 that they listen on. And sometimes people just go to our website, uh, thetheologypodcast.com, and just give us some money that way, you know, because there is a way to do that there. So uh, all those gifts uh, do help to, uh, to fray the cost of producing the show and they are much appreciated. Anyway, I think that's enough for now. I got to get home and I got to get ready to fly back to nah. the Pacific Northwest. So, uh, you know, this, uh, we've, we've recorded a series of shows here that should take us through April. And we might need to do some Zoom shows in May, but uh, I'll be back. I'll be back i'll be back (laughs) and uh because i i I do own a house uh, actually own a few properties here in this part of the world and i do need to get back every once in a while so uh we're gonna be live (laughs) and together again
1: good
0: but uh thanks for listening bye bye
1: bye Bye